Now, last week, last week, I threw a monkey wrench into our Bible reading plan, and that's because I felt, I felt very much led of the Lord to preach a pure salvation message, which I did, and I pray that God used it in whatever way that God wishes to touch people's lives. But of course, we had to do it all online. We had some weather last week, as you well remember. Wow, we've had to learn to be flexible this year, haven't we? <laughs> Seems like every time we turn around, something's happening that we're having to make new plans. But we got through last week. Now, this next week in your Bible journals, you'll be walking through 1 Samuel chapter 12. There's a lot in that chapter. I want to preach from it this morning, but believe me, there is far more that I will say nothing about than there is that I will talk about. I mean, there is a lot there, and I hope that you'll take the next several days to reflect on the passage, to pray about what God might speak to you. It's very important that we continue on week by week in the Word of God. That's what changes your life. It's the Word of God. Remember, as we saw a few weeks ago, the heart of it all is hear the Word of the Lord. And so we need to hear God's Word. We need to take it to heart. Now, this is a long passage. I'm going to read most of the chapter and we'll walk through it slowly. And then there's one point in particular I want us to pay attention to. You might say it's the gospel in this chapter. I think, in fact, whenever you go through Scripture and you're reading and sometimes you're not quite sure, what do I make of this? This particularly happens when you're reading in the Old Testament. A good question to ask is, what is the gospel here? What is the good news? No, it doesn't mention Jesus Christ, but the Old Testament prepares the way for Christ. And we see the same God revealed in Jesus Christ, revealed in the Old Testament. So you can find gospel even in passages like this. But in 1 Samuel chapter 12, let's read starting in verse 1. And then we're going to read one part of two, and we're going to skip down to verse 7. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. Skip down to verse 7. Stand here because I am going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. You notice the language there. They cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent. Verse 9, but they forgot the Lord their God. So he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the armor of army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, we have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jerubbaal, or Gideon, 
Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you so that you lived in safety. Do you see the pattern once again? They cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent. But, verse 12, but, when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now, here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. That king's name is Saul. In Hebrew, Saul means asked. So there's a play on words. Now you have your king, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. This language goes back to the language of Deuteronomy, where God says to Israel that if you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will fall under a curse. So God set before them a decision. Will they be faithful to the God who delivered them out of Egypt and live under his blessings, or will they instead be unfaithful and live under the curse that brings always that sin always brings into our lives. That's the choice they had to make. Now, they wanted to escape that covenantal formula. Obey, you're blessed. Disobey, you're cursed. They wanted to escape that. They wanted to be able to maintain their cause, to defeat their enemies, to be in safety and security all their days, not by obeying God, but by appointing a king. And now God says through Samuel effectively, the king is an irrelevancy. It makes no difference whatsoever. Now that you have a king, he says, if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you don't obey, you and your king will fall under a curse. You will suffer for it. And so they make this effort to assert their independence, their security, their safety. They want to provide for themselves without trusting God. And God says, it really makes no difference at all. It all comes back to the covenant. Then in verse 14, now then, stand still. This is Samuel speaking. Stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest now that is early summer, a time in which it almost never rains in Israel? Is it not the dry season, he's asking? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain. Notice, Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord sent. Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord sent. Now Samuel is calling out to the Lord and the Lord sends. God's way of working remains intact, king or no king, calling out to the Lord and the Lord sends. He says, I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. 
Then Samuel called on the Lord. And that same day, the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. The Hebrew word originally refers to a wilderness. You go out in the wilderness, there's nothing there. It's empty. And God's saying, these idols, they are useless because there's nothing there. It's like a wasteland, you go to an idol. And so he says, don't turn away after nothings. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you. Verse 22, for the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. Long passage. But I have to tell you, I don't mind reading it because I know the best words I'll speak this morning, I just spoke, reading them from the scriptures. So this last word, if you persist in evil, you and your king will perish. That's a reassertion of that same warning in Deuteronomy, that same choice that's before them. If you do good, then you'll be blessed. If you do evil, then you fall under a curse. That's the law. That's Torah. And it doesn't matter if you set up a king. That's still going to pertain. Now, the people were terrified. They were terrified because there was a sign from heaven that let them know that they had displeased God. Before that sign, you can be sure they were quite pleased with themselves. In fact, if you go back to the end of chapter 11, you'll see that Saul and the people of Israel rejoiced because Saul had led them in a great victory against the Ammonites. So with that victory, it looked as if turning to a king was a good move. They got the results that they wanted. And so they're, they're going on and everything's just fine by them. But interestingly, it doesn't say that Samuel rejoiced with Saul and all Israel. Saul and all Israel rejoiced. Samuel knew better. So he tells them, this king will do you no good. It all depends on whether you obey or not. You need to remember that. But the people, when they become aware that God is not pleased with them, when there's a sign from heaven, they tremble and they're afraid and they're saying, pray for us that we won't die. They're afraid that God will judge them. And it's then that God, that Samuel rather speaks the gospel to them. Did you see it? He says, yes, you've sinned when you demanded a king. There's no question that you've sinned. And now you have your king and that's not going to be undone. You cannot undone what you have done. But... 
even now, you must serve the Lord. Don't turn away to idols. Don't turn away to nothings. You won't find life there. But instead, turn to the Lord. He has chosen you. He is a gracious God. And it's his good pleasure to have chosen you. In other words, Samuel is saying, don't give up on serving the Lord and serving him with your whole heart because God has not given up on you. You've made a mistake, but all is not lost. You can't undo what you've done, but your future is not now set in a way that, that brings a curse upon you, but rather you continue to serve the Lord and you are his people and you will live under blessing. I say that's gospel because how many of us, we've made decisions that we're not proud of. We've done things that we regret even to this day. Sometimes that regret bears down on us. Sins that we've committed, perhaps. Sins that, that impact other people. And often those are the sins that trouble us the most. How we've hurt our own family, perhaps. Sometimes it's a sin that destroys our reputation in the community. Sometimes it might be something completely secret and all the heavier because it is. But we can't get past it. We can't get past it. We regret it and it always sits there condemning us and discouraging us. We, we realize that we failed God we can't fix it. And now, now it just doesn't quite seem the same. You know, families are all different. No family's perfect. And um, I'm so grateful for my family, but my family was not perfect. I'm talking about the family I was raised in. Um, Linda and I are perfect parents, and our children are perfect children. And, <laughs> and we had just, you know... Wake up every morning, we hear angels singing. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. Now, I'm not talking about when I was growing up. So um, there are things that, you know, a counselor would say was dysfunctional. Let me tell you one of those things. If you did something wrong, if you did something wrong, you knew you were supposed to act kind of like a dog does when you yell at it. You know how it lowers your head, it hits head, and it kind of crawls in the room, maybe goes in the corner. That's how you were supposed to act. You did something wrong, and you got to keep a low profile for a while. It's never exactly, you're never exactly told how long. You just kind of sensed how long. And eventually the cloud would dissipate. And you never had this sense of all is forgiven, but you did have a sense that, well, you know, the storm cloud has passed. Let me, let me crawl out of my hole now and go on like everything's okay. Some of you are thinking, wow, your family was dysfunctional. But you know, all families have their issues and that's, that's kind of how, how we did things. And I think a lot of Christians relate to God in that way. You do something wrong, you can't undo it, and it's always there, and you're sort of, you're sort of 
feeling the weight of it. And you try to pray and try to serve God, but there's always the sense that it's not all cleared out. It's not all forgiven, and you can't go forward because, after all, you can't undo it. You can't undo it. I remember talking to a woman one time who said that she just couldn't get over her divorce. She was married. She had children. She loved her children. She had a good life. This was her first, first marriage. It was like 30 years ago, and she, she couldn't get over the weight that had on her, and it was with her whenever she tried to pray, whenever she tried to serve God, and it was a discouragement to her. It made it hard to follow God. It was hard to do that. It's hard to follow God when you feel like you've crossed a line and there's no going back. You've crossed a river and the bridge has been burned. You had your chance, but now, now you've blown it. And if you're just lucky enough, you'll be, able to, you'll be able to hold your head up cautiously, but you don't feel like there's that, that free and open relationship with God. And yet God's not like that. God is forgiving. And God doesn't say, oh, well, you know what? You've made a mistake and it can't be undone, so that's it. No, God takes the mistake and even while its ramifications still play out in this life, his favor still comes up, rests upon you as you turn to him and trust him. Look what it says again in this passage. It's, it starts really in verse 20. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with your, well, all your heart. Do not turn away after nothings, he says. Verse 22, for the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. See, that's grace. So God chooses you in Christ and he has forgiven you and made you his own. You're his child. And he's not going to go back on that. He's not going to turn away from you. That's not how God works. In fact, it says, for the sake of his great name, the Lord won't do that. For the sake of his great name, our good and gracious God glorifies his name in the grace that he shows us. Think about how significant that is. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul lays out in the first verses one of the most theologically dense passages in all the Bible. He lays out all that God has done to save us. And then at the end, he says, it has all been done to the praise of his glorious grace. That is, God saves us because he's gracious, but also, hear me, to the praise of his glorious grace. God glorifies himself through his grace. God, God glorifies himself when he picks you up and enables you to stand and go forward on the journey in spite of whatever mistake you've made, in spite of the fact that it can't be undone. You're not in some kind of loser's bracket where now you can never win. You are instead walking with God, blessed of God. 
That means right now, where you stand, no matter how you got here this morning, right now, where you stand, or I guess I should say where you sit, you are one decision from being in the perfect will of God. One decision. The decision to follow Jesus Christ with your whole heart. That's all. That's all. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter how far off the path you've gotten. There's one decision from getting back into your relationship with God where God's blessing comes upon you. Too few of us understand that. So we live with that kind of low-level sense of self-condemnation. And we end up turning away from the Lord just because we're discouraged. It's a great passage in Romans 5. We don't have a slide for it because I didn't think of using it till shortly before the service. But listen to this passage, Romans 5, starting verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. It's like grace is this sphere and we step into it. So now we live under the favor of God. You say, well, yes, I know when you're saved, that's true, but that mistake I've made that sin I've wrestled with. Well, down at verse 9, he says, since we have now been justified by his blood, he's atoned for our sin, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more Having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying that if God saved us when we were in our sins, how much more, now that we are his children, though we might still sin, how much more will he forgive us? We are, after all, his beloved children. We get it exactly backwards. We think, oh, well, now that I'm a Christian, I can't be forgiven because God forgave me all the way back there, but now look what I've done. Now I'm unforgivable. Paul says, no, it's not that way. Now that you're his child, you are all the more going to receive God's gracious mercy. And then this wonderful line in verse 11, not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We boast in God. Could be translated, we glory in God. It's a kind of celebratory thing. What we're doing is we're saying God is incredible. God is gracious. God is good. Look what God has done in my life. So here's what I want you to think about. Israel had asked for a king, and they couldn't undo that. But God says, don't turn away from idols. You keep serving me. Samuel reminds them that God chose them, and for his great name, he's not going to abandon them. That's the encouragement that they have. The same thing happens with us. God shows us that mercy. Now, what we have to do for the sake of God's great name is turn our error into praise turn our regret into celebration, turn that burden on our heart into cause to glorify God's great grace. So now when I feel that 
weight coming down upon me. What do I do? I don't think about, oh, I'm a terrible sinner. I'm unforgivable. I think instead, think, look at all my sin, and yet God has taken it away. God has forgiven me. I have made these mistakes, but God is favoring me still, and I will praise him for it. I will glory in it. I am among the forgiven. I am a child of God. You see, all those things that that the enemy can use to beat you down, you can flip the script, and you can turn those things to the praise of God's glorious grace. That's what God wants us to do. We need to remember that God is gracious and God is glorified in showing grace. We should praise him for showing grace. Think of it this way. If God is glorified, if his great name is exalted, when he shows mercy and favor and he picks up a sinner and helps them to carry on, then I have strong confidence that he will show mercy and grace to me. Will he not? If he is glorified in that? So you don't need to be held back by your mistakes. You don't have to feel like it's all, it's all done and can't be undone. No, it can't be undone sometimes, but God's favor can rest on you. And in the end, isn't that what really matters? We all have regrets. We've all made mistakes. But in the end, isn't that what matters? That God's favor rests on you, not just now for eternity? Isn't that what really matters? Isn't that what really matters? God's favor rests on you. True, there are consequences to choices that we make, and we may have to live with some of those consequences. Think of the prodigal son. Prodigal son wants his inheritance early. He gets his inheritance. He runs off and he squanders it before he finally realizes this isn't working. And he turns back to his father. And his father receives him with open arms. He throws his arms around him. He honors him. He blesses him. This is his son. But the younger son still has a problem with his older brother. The older brother can't stand him. There's going to be some work to do to get that relationship right. You can't help but wonder, too, now that the son took his inheritance early, how is that going to work when the father dies? Is he still going to divide the estate between his older son and his younger son? In which case, the older son gets less than he would have otherwise. Is that right? How is this younger son going to make restitution? And then we can use our imagination for all the other ways that this younger son's going to have to live with some of the decisions that he's made. His reputation isn't going to instantly be put back into place. And if he expects everybody to receive him like the father, he's a fool because they won't. They won't receive him like the father, at least not at first. There are consequences to our choices, absolutely. But isn't the favor of God the main thing? And if I have the favor of God, can't I deal with everything else? Can't I, can't I live a good and blessed life 
even if there's some residue left from past mistakes? And can't I even turn those things to the praise of God? Can't I even turn those things to the praise of God? Even if they've not yet been put right, can't I say, I believe the gracious and good God will put all things right, and in the end, he will be glorified, not just in me, but in my family. Can't I do that? Can't I believe for that? There's gospel in this passage when you realize that even when you ask for a king, and you can't undo asking for a king, God doesn't cast you off. 